going to continue our series. We've been looking at uh, marks of a healthy church. What does a healthy church look like? And I'm going to step out by faith real quick and just make a statement uh, uh, on behalf of the leadership going forward. Uh, some may be asking, do we have a search committee? Or are we doing any of that process yet? And the answer is actually no at this point. Uh, we got lots of homework to do first and foremost. The world of churches has changed since your last pastoral church, uh, search. Uh, the whole process actually has pretty much changed since your last pastoral search. And it has become very competitive. Uh, there are actually at this point within the PCA, there, while there are more teaching elders than there are churches in the PCA, and it's been that way for the, the history of, the, uh, of this denomination, there are fewer teaching elders who want to be a pastor than there are churches. And so it's very competitive right now. Uh, and we've got a lot of homework that we'll be doing over the course of the next few weeks uh, and months, just uh, getting ready so that you all, when we get to that point of forming the search committee, have the best possible package prepared that when a candidate looks at it, they'll be able to say, these guys have all their ducks in a row. This is where I need to be. And, and uh, we can then see the Lord uh, reaching out and drawing the, the man. I guess it almost worked. <laughs> uh, drawing the man that he has for you. And, and uh, I'm excited to be able to work with the session and to work with all of you all in that process going forward. There will be more information coming uh, in the coming weeks. Also, uh, as we go forward today, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper after the sermon. I pray that you're uh, looking forward to that. Uh, begin now, even now, asking the Lord to prepare your heart for that celebration. Also, just a reminder, and I know Brandon will bring it up come the offering time, but just a reminder that this is Benevolent Sunday also. We'll be taking a, an offering for our, our Mercy Ministries uh, later in the service uh, as well. Well, as we continue this look at the healthy church, uh, we're going from the New Testament and going back into the Old Testament. We're going to turn to the psalmist for some guidance. And we're going to look at a passage out of Psalm 119. And I love Psalm 119. I, I mentioned to Stan coming in that Philippians is one of my favorite books. But Psalm 119 is probably my favorite chapter out of all of Scripture. Uh, if you're not familiar with Psalm 119, it's a unique teaching tool. Uh, it was written uh, from, for fathers to teach the children. It uh, goes through, every section is given a letter of the Hebraic alphabet. And every first word in the line in the Hebrew begins with a word starting with that letter. So in Aleph, each line begins with a word beginning with the word Aleph. Uh, and it was meant to, to help to teach. And, and this was a tool in which the children would, be, would, would memorize in order to learn uh, about God and about the Word. It's probably the most extensive chapter in the entire Bible when it comes to the teaching about the Word of God. And uh, just so we're, we're all clear in our world of... Uh, uh, Everything's relative in today's world. I, I feel like I have to sometimes define what I mean by the Word of God. In that, we're talking about the Scripture, 
And for us as Presbyterians, as Protestants, as Reformed believers, we're talking about the, the Scripture from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book of the Revelation, not including the Apocrypha or any of the extra-biblical writings, but just that which was canonized by the church uh, we, that we find in, in our Bibles, and most of you have a, a good copy of that. I would argue that this chapter of the Bible teaches us more about how to apply the Word of God to our lives through reading, studying, and meditation than any other book in the Bible. Uh, as you read through Psalm 119, which is also the longest chapter in, in all of the Bible, you will find in every little section, in, in almost every verse, a reference to the Word of God but using different words all the way through it. Uh, it might be precepts or statutes or, or laws or the word or, or, uh, or scripture or voice. But he, the, the psalmist uses all these different descriptive words to describe the word of God. And it's important to us when we think about the word of God because a healthy church has a good relationship with the word of God. And the Word of God is foundational for all of the decisions and programming that the church makes. In our world today, uh, in, our church, in the church today, there's this tendency to try to be something for everybody. Uh, just a, a, a quick aside, back when I was in seminary, uh, I started a, a baseball card shop in order to earn some extra money to support uh, my family uh, it provided us our grocery and gas money. Uh, I initially started it in a bowling alley. I had one showcase that I bought from an, a jewelry store that had gone out of business. Started in the bowling alley, and after a few months, I grew to the point where I bought a, I mean, I rented a little uh, office and started there. And then after uh, about two years, I, I made a, a difficult decision. I brought on a, par, a partner, and we moved to a big storefront where we, we attempted to become the baseball card shop for everybody. And what we didn't realize in making that move and trying to be something from everybody was how much money, how much income we were actually receiving from those boys and girls that were getting off the school bus on the corner and coming in and spending their dollar every week. When we moved to the big storefront, we lost all of that walk-in traffic. It was only drive-by. Now, we, might, we made much bigger one-time sales, but we lost all the constant traffic we had. And it just got to the point where I said, I can't, I can't deal with this anymore, and I sold it. Uh, where am I going with that? Sometimes in the church, we try to be something for everybody. And we try to do all these different things uh, to be able to be able to reach everybody. And the reality is, is we can't. What we have to do is focus upon the Word and what is the Word telling us to do and how is the Word leading us. And the Scriptures do give us great guidance in how we as a church are to live day by day. And so they must be foundational. They must be a part of our daily life and our church's daily life because they set the tone. Dr. Ligon Duncan, the uh, the president of RTS often says that the, a healthy church reads the word, hears the word, preaches and teaches the word, sings the word, prays the word, and lives out the word. I would also add to that that they also meditate upon the word. 
an often forgotten aspect of, of piety that we're probably going to focus a little more on today than we have at other times. What is meditation? The best picture of meditation that I can give you is that of a cow. Uh, think of a cow. Any, any of, anybody in here actually ever raised cattle? Okay, so you're, you're a little bit aware. Cows don't eat like we do. They have multiple stomachs. And they will, they will bite the grass and chew the grass and they will swallow it down into the first stomach and it will stay there and it's called ruminating. It'll ruminate for a while and then it comes back and they chew on it some more and it goes down to the next stomach and it ruminates there and then comes back and they chew on it some more and then it goes to the, to the next area. When we talk about meditation, we're talking about that same process of rumination. We read a passage, we read the word, we chew on it for a little bit, we swallow it in, get it in, and let it kind of ruminate and work through our mind and our life. And then we bring it back and we think about it some more and we dwell on it some more and then it it ruminates some more within us. And then we bring it back again and we continue this process of, of thinking and dwelling upon the word. The Puritans spoke a lot about this and they spoke meditation and uh, on the word in, t- in two different ways. The first was uh, the occasional uh, meditations. And those are the situations that, uh, just as the word said, happen occasionally. Thomas Watson defined these as such as are, su- are taken up on any sudden occasion. Thomas Manton in his book says, Occasional meditation is an act by which the soul spiritualizes every object about which it is conversant. To me, uh, this is the type of meditation that we might slip into when we are walking along the beach after a storm, feeling the salt air, seeing the power and hearing the power of the waves crashing on the shore, and then finding ourselves marveling and thinking about the beauty and the power of God. That's a picture of that occasional meditation. It doesn't happen all the time. You know, we can do it here in the Smokies too. Uh, I, I remember drives where we've come through uh, Ware's Valley and then up through uh, the park after a rain and the roads are glistening and the trees, you're seeing the drops and then that stream that l- runs along the road that is babbling and, and it's just a picture of beauty and just reminds us of the beauty of God. That would be an occasional meditation. The second form is the deliberate or solemn meditation. It's a type of meditation that we'll find in our passage in just a few moments. Again, Thomas Watson writes, Meditation is the soul's retiring of itself, that by a serious and solemn thinking upon God, the heart may be raised up to heavenly affections. Calame, in his book, writes, uh, Deliberate meditation is when a man sets apart some time and goes into a private closet or a private walk, and there to solemnly and deliberately meditate of the things of heaven. One thing I've discovered as I've been reading and studying the Puritans in their lives and how, and, and how they meditated and thought about the word is, is all of them were great walkers. Uh, that was kind of how they did their quiet times. Uh, they would actually, every day at some point, they went for a walk just by themselves to meditate and to think about what God was seeking and teaching them today. And as I mentioned, Calame speaks to that. Well, our psalm is an exposition of deliberate or solemn meditation. A brief how-to 
given as an answer to the probing question we find in verse 9. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 119. It's fairly close to the exact middle of your Bible. Uh, And uh, uh, like I said, it's the longest chapter, so if you turn toward the middle, you'll probably open right up to part of it somewhere. Just flip back to verse 9. And if you would, in honor of the Lord's Word, let's stand and hear the reading of God's holy inspired Word found in Psalm 119. We're going to read verses 9 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So as we see, as we begin this chapter, this, this, this passage, Beth, uh, which is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, we, we find a, a brief how-to given to us, an answer to the question in verse 9 there. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 1, which we had as part of our, our, or as our call to worship today. I don't know if you caught that as, as it was being read. gives us a picture of what a man walking purely is to look like. But this passage here shares with us how to maintain that purity every day. So one says, this is what it should be, how you should be. And now this one is saying, and this is how you do that. This is how you maintain that. Note uh, here that uh, this meditation on the word is at the heart of the constant walk. This storing up. Look at some of the words that is used there. Guarding it according to your word. Seeking with your whole heart. Storing up your word. Uh, declaring the rules, delighting in the testimonies, meditating on the precepts, fixing your eyes on the way, delighting again in statutes, not forgetting. All of these words giving us clues and teaching as to how we're to apply the Word of God to our lives each and every day. As we begin, I also note that verse 9 reads, How can a young man keep his way pure? Not, how does the young man make his way pure? There's an assumption that here, the passage begins with the assumption, the assumption that we who are reading this are holy because he is holy. We are pure in Christ or pure in God because God is pure in us. In other words, this passage is not for the unsaved or for the straying, but for those who are children of the king, for those who are God's people. And if that is you today, I pray that you'll listen up and and meditate on the points that we have today. For we must learn to meditate and apply the word of God to live a life of purity by applying these points that we will find in our passage today. 
This is an unusual Presbyterian sermon. And that this time I have eight points, not three. (laughs) But they're shorter points. Points for us to think about, to meditate upon, and to apply to our lives that we might live them, live lives of purity. And that this church would be a church of biblical purity also. The first we find in verse 9. And again, in answer to the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? How are we to live? First, first, by guarding it according to your word. When I was a child, my siblings, I had two sisters and a brother. We would, uh, whenever my mom made a cake, we would fight over who got the beaters. Yeah. Those of you who, who bake know there are usually only two beaters, and there were four of us, uh, and they're usually not big enough to actually share. So, you, and, and actually, there were three elements to the baking of that cake that we all fought over. There were the two beaters, and, and you never could take just one. You had to have both of them. So you had two beaters and the bowl. And it was always a battle over who would, who would get what. We were always underfoot, and in, 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 in my mom's way, and as she was cooking and base, as she was cooking and baking, uh, we were trying to be there so that we would be the first in line when she would say, "Who wants the beaters?" That we would be right there. She would keep the bowl just high enough out of our reach and shoo us away that we couldn't get it until she was ready, uh, just in case we did reach up and grab it and dump it everywhere and make a mess. She guarded that bowl guarded those beaters. And here we find the psalmist teaching us that our faith and our purity is something that we too are to guard, something that we too are to put out of the reach of ourselves so that we don't make a mess of it. Doesn't mean put it away and never look at it. It means to protect it and keep it. The Hebrew word means to to put a hedge around it, to protect, to guard, to keep picture the uh, the mama bear and the baby bear. Never losing sight of the cubs, mama bear is always there and, and, and watching and guarding. And if anything or anybody gets too close, mama comes running. And that's kind of the picture that we have here of the guarding of, of our hearts with according to the word. As we look at it, we can learn two things about our meditation and about our applying the word. First, the psalmist wants us to be deliberate. We have to make an effort and spend time guarding our thoughts and our souls. It's not something we can just randomly do. It's not something that just happens. It's a concerted effort that we have to make. We hear talk in the church about quiet times and devotional times and whatever phrase you use to refer to that time, and and that doesn't matter at all to me, but whatever the phrase is you use for your time alone with the Lord, do you guard that time? Do you protect it? I uh, am very schedule-oriented. That's been the one knock that has been given to me at different times in my life is that sometimes I'm too schedule-oriented. But one thing I try to do is for my my own personal devotional time is it's, it's the same time. I try to be the same place. I I try not to schedule meetings for that time. I try to keep it guarded, protected as much as I can. 
That's not to say there aren't times where something comes up. Uh, this past week I had had a travel a trip I had to take, and so I missed Tuesday because I was tra- driving at the time. But overall, I guard that time. I protect it. That is my time to be with God. So we have to be deliberate about that. Secondly, there we must spend time thinking about this, developing and implementing a plan. We can't just say we're going to guard it. We have to think about how are we going to do so, which gets to my scheduling. You know, I block schedule time and I schedule it down. Uh, I have my schedule for the week. Uh, Usually I write it down, but if I don't, I still have it working in my mind what time it's going to be. My wife can tell you I'm very regular. Uh, I get up at a certain time, and I do things in a certain way, and it it throws my whole day off if that schedule gets messed up. Uh, And I think through this. When am I going to be able to do it? Well, if I can't do it in the morning, when else can I do it? And I find the time so that, again, I can protect it. Raises some questions. What are we thinking about each day? What am I watching, listening to, reading that leads me away from purity and into sin? The psalmist says to guard the scriptures, guard our purity according to the word of God. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. It's Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. This is... What Paul's speaking to is the same thing that the psalmist is speaking to here. It's not an occasional or haphazard pattern or plan. Great thought must be given to guarding our hearts. And same for the church. Great thought must be given to guarding the church and the application of the word within the church. When questions arise, should we do this or should we do this? How do we say this or should we say this? The first question that should come up to our mind is what does the Scripture say to us about this subject, this topic, this program, whatever it is? How do we make sure that we are basing our ministry, basing our thoughts, basing our words, basing our teaching upon the Scripture? And how do we guard that as a body? One of my favorite professors, Dr. Knox Chamblin, would always talk about our spiritual radar. And every time he talked about it, he would do this. And he'd say, you know, whenever somebody's speaking, your spiritual radar should go up. And you should be listening and examining whatever they're saying in light of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, you should be doing that too. Here today, whatever I say, whatever any preacher says, whatever any teacher says, whatever you see on TV or wherever, you you. Assess it, not in the light of the common cultural milieu, but in light of the Scripture. What are they saying in relation to Scripture? And you guard the scriptural interpretation and application around whatever that may be. We need to think about, what does a pure life look like? What are those things that can lead me astray? How can I avoid temptations? What keeps me from guarding my purity? These are just a few aspects of our purity before the Lord that we must deliberate, be deliberate to meditate upon and think about every day. 
The second thing uh, we find in this passage that we are to do to maintain our purity is to seek the Lord. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. With my whole heart, I am to seek God through the word. Does it instantly remind you as it does me of Matthew 6, 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all, all these things will be added to you. It clearly, the passage clearly speaks to how we are to seek after God. We're to seek after him with all that we have. The Shema found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, through 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I don't know if you caught that verse there really and thought back to our previous sermons, but what was it that the Ephesian church lost? They lost their first love. When we looked at that a few weeks ago, what did we say that first love was? That they had stopped loving the Lord with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their might. And here the psalmist is bringing this back in to us and saying that's how we're to seek the, the word. That's how we're to read the word. That's how we're to meditate on the word. That's how we're to apply the word. Jesus would later call this the greatest commandment or teaching of Scripture. So what does it mean to seek with my whole heart? What does that look like as an individual, but also as a congregation? What would that look like? What keeps me and keeps us from seeking with our whole heart? When you or I lose something, what do we usually do? We usually stop what we're doing and try to think about where was I last? Where did I see this last? What was I doing and who was I with the last time I remember seeing or having whatever that is? We think about, we dwell upon, we meditate upon those things so that we can try to figure out what it is or where it is, that thing of which we seek. We deliberately meditate or think about the lost item, in order to find it. And to keep our life pure and prevent wandering, we must deliberately seek out God through the word and think about that. The third application we find is in verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Study and memorization of the word of God are inseparable to our meditation, but also to our application. Most of us have a few verses that we've memorized, right? I imagine if I said, what is John 3.16? Pretty much everybody in here would, would be able to see. Heather's able to, to quote that. Maybe Matthew 6.33, 2 Corinthians 5.17, hopefully 1 Corinthians 10.13, Philippians 4.4. 4 all verses that are fairly familiar to us, but there are other passages, tons of them throughout Scripture. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord. Lean not unto your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge His paths. Right? We, we learn these passages. We're to, to memorize, to store the Word. Watson writes, Meditation is a duty imposed. It's not arbitrary. The same God who has bid us believe has bid us to meditate. 
Joshua 1 8 reads, The book, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night. And that phrase, the word that is translated, shall not depart out of our mouth, speaks to it having to become a part of our life. The word of God is as, is as important to our life of purity as the blood is important to our life here today. Without your life blood, you can do nothing, for you are dead. Without the word stored up in our lives, we are little more than spiritual scrapbooks. A collection of thoughts and memories that remind us of what we should be or have, but devoid of actual possession of what it is. We need to memorize and get the word in. And I encourage us as a congregation, encourage you as a congregation to, to think about that. Uh, many times in my previous churches, we would actually have a weekly memory verse. And, you know, we didn't berate folks if they didn't memorize it. But we set that as a goal as a congregation to memorize a passage together. Usually it was a passage associated with the upcoming sermon. And we would challenge folks to memorize it and then... We had took a minute or two in, in the service to say, okay, who memorized the verse? Would somebody recite the verse back to us? Again, not to berate anybody, but to encourage us as brothers and sisters together to get the word into our hearts, into our lives, and to memorize it. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the the." division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then Paul, writing to Timothy, teaches us, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible has the words to teach us and lead us from the lives of sin. And if we neglect the reading, studying, and meditating on the Word of God, you will, not might, you will fall into sin. That's why the psalmist builds on this thought in, in the next verse. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. We're to learn the Word. Not just memorize it rote. Most of us in here are of the age where if we were asked to do the to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, we could do it without even thinking about it. Probably in the church, if we were asked to pray the Lord's Prayer, we could do that without even thinking about it. Because we've memorized them, right? But have we really thought about what either of those are saying? Have we really learned what those are teaching. The previous passage of storing the heart, uh, the word in our hearts, uh, led the psalmist to praise the Lord and to seek his help. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. I preached uh, a lot in the past. But one time in the past, after a, a message, I I spoke with a friend uh, about the scripture that I had preached on and, and had encouraged them to read. And their response was, well, I read that passage you gave and it just didn't connect with me. 
And so we ended up having to have this discussion uh, where we sat down and talked and contemplated a relationship with God. For the Bible teaches that it's the Lord who illuminates or opens up the Scripture to our understanding. And maybe the inability to connect was the failure to practice of learning the Word and trying to understand it and meditate on it and dwell upon it. It wasn't, it, what, what I was trying to get across to them is it's, it's not just enough to read it to understand it. You have to read it and think about it and dwell upon it to the point of, of memorizing it and reciting it over and over again and trying to figure it out and, and maybe even looking at other texts and seeing how, what, what, how they deal with it and, and trying to find those cross-references to help us understand it better, but investigating it, learning it. We also had the discussion that we can't open it up, that ultimately it's the Holy Spirit that does. Jesus talking to the disciples and in John 16 said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And this entire chapter, Psalm 119, is a treatise on learning the Word of God. If you want to learn how to know and to study the Bible, study Psalm 119. The point here, though, is simple. God must open the Scriptures to us. And if you have no relationship with God, if you're not in prayer, if you're not regularly reading the Bible, you will not be able to learn the Word of God, let alone be able to give it any serious thought. Because you cannot meditate on that which you do, do not know. So we need to learn the Word. Next, we need to speak the Word. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. This fifth point can be applied to our preaching, of course. But as I read it in the context of the passage, the psalmist isn't speaking just about the preaching on Sunday, but is speaking about our daily conversation, speaking about our daily lives. What do we talk about the most? It's been said that we talk about, we talk most about that which we love most. And if this cliche is true, I stand as a condemned man before you because I find even in my own life, I often talk about anything and everything but the Word of God. It's not that I don't speak about the Word of God, but in my own life, and I'm sure in yours, I find myself all over the place, the weather, the sports. Uh, we talked about Alabama, Tennessee basketball yesterday. We talked about other things happening, going on. In every book of the Bible, there's at least one verse that speaks to both the great commandment and the great commission. To make God known and to know God and to share that gospel, that good news of salvation of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
And that phrase, go therefore, is better translated as you are going about your day or, or wherever you go, make disciples or speak the words of life. Do you spend time contemplating what is coming out of your mouth each day? As a church, before we make uh, pronunciations, before we, before we make announcements, are we thinking about how is the word being applied here? Before we make programming decisions and, and, and uh, outreaches into the community, are we thinking about how we're going to speak the word? In our world today, the social media world, where we're able to get online at any time from our, our pocket or a computer screen, or even the TV these days. We could say anything we want to, and no one really gives any serious thought to the words or message because we can just say it, and there's no accountability to what we say. We can anonymously say anything that we want, and we'll either instantly become famous or forgotten. But is that what the Lord wants? The Lord God who is never to be forgotten does not want a speaking that which tears down others, but instead builds others and brings him glory. So we need to think about, meditate upon, dwell upon what are our words saying? What about our speech? What is it that I'm talking about most? Is it God? Is it Christ? Or is it the things of the world? Or the actions? Or politics? Or, 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 or culture? Or whatever? We need to meditate on what we say. On what we declare. The next uh, step to maintaining our pure... Purity is to delight in his ways. In his last couple verses, last three verses, he uses that phrase, I delight, or I will delight twice, in two different ways. In the first one, which is in verse 14, we find, in, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. In this verse, we find the, the word delight being used to teach us the what as to what we are to do. In the final verse, verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. We'll see in a few moments. It teaches us how we are to be in a position of delight. Let's look first at delighting in his ways here. What do you, what do you think of the way God works in your life? Knows Michael this past week posted some pictures of some flowers that uh, uh, that he I'm assuming you had taken them uh, and, and uh, he made mention of really of this of delighting in the glory of God as seen through those flowers. What are the ways that you see God at work in your life that you think about? What are the things that He is teaching you day to day of the graces He allows you to see at home, at work, and in the world? Do they bring you delight and encouragement? Do you see, and I've shared with you that we should be asking regularly that question, how is the Lord at work in your life today or this week? 
Why? So that we can begin to see broader beyond just us and beyond our our little tunnel that we're often walking in. That we can see the bigger picture. How is God at work and what is he doing? So that we can take delight in it. God has done so much around us. that So often we take for granted that we miss God's working and thus we never seem to delight in it. I wonder why it seems that most Christians are so morose on a daily basis. The Redeemer of the Word has redeemed us. He has made us His, declared us His, given us life, not just life for today, but life eternal. He's freed us from our sin, cleansed us from all of that, cast it as far as the east is from the west, put it behind Him and remember it no more. We should be the most delightful people in the world. People should be asking us, why are you so happy? Peter talks about it, to be ready to give reason for the hope that we have. Because we're so delighted in what God has done. The very God who created the world and all that is in it gave us life and the privilege of sharing the great gift of salvation. And most of us walk through this day with lives that demonstrate, woe is me, more than Whoa, look what God is doing. Here, we're being encouraged to spend our time contemplating those things about the Lord that brings delight to our lives. And the psalmist has given us this whole list of them, an entire chapter spelling out one by one over and over and over again. Look at what you have to be grateful for, to thank him for, to delight in. We call the scriptures the good news. But most people who see or hear us would think that the Bible is a burden at best. A list of do's and don'ts. Not the delight of our hearts. We struggle today in our world seeing the relevance in the teaching of scriptures. Because God's people too often see no relevance in it and thus take no delight in receiving it or making it known. Those of you who are married, remember when you first met your beloved spouse or or the birth of your first child or maybe some other great unexpected gift you received? How'd you respond to that? With sullenness or with delight? Well, is it? Oh, well, it's just, this happens all the time. Let's just move on. Or was that person or that event something you just could not stop talking about? And everybody knew what you were going to tell them because they could see the look on your face. I was talking to uh, my best friend this week, uh, and, uh, both of us had a common experience in the last week or so. My coach had made the statement to me, and I made the statement to him. We both have had changes in our, in our life. We made big moves. He moved down to Florida. We moved to Tennessee. And both, I was told, and I told him, I can tell just by listening to you, the weight that you were bearing is gone. And, and just the change in your countenance is there the delight 
that had come into his life was there. In Jesus Christ, we've received the greatest gift of all eternity. Should we not delight in every word that speaks of that great gift? As individuals and as a church, do we want to be known as the congregation where everybody's always wringing their hands and worried about how well they're meeting the law? Or do we want to be known as that church that has the delight of life, that people want to be with us because we're not just fun to be around, we're enjoyable to be around because we love each other and we love the community. But more importantly, we love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And see how it all connects back to the first love. Next, in verse 15, we're told to fix our eyes. And this is the last of the what to do verses. And actually is the only one in the whole section that uses that word meditate that I've been emphasizing so much. It gives us a a biblical definition of meditation to add to, uh, to your notes. Meditation is the process of thinking deep about the Word of God and the works of God, of fixing our eyes upon God's ways. Look at the passage. First, we read, I will meditate on your precepts. This portion addresses the Word of God. And as we've seen in previous verses, we're to, to be much in the thought about the Word of God. But the second part of the verse is the part we often miss. Fix our eyes on your ways. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. Where do we set our mind and fix our eyes. It matters. It matters to the church. It matters to our outreach. It matters to our lives. We're first to set them on the word of God. And then secondly, on the works of God. I encourage you sometime to go back through the Old Testament and see and just underline And note how many times the Lord says to the people of Israel, remember, 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 remember. Because what, it's easy for us to, the first part's easy on the word of God. We've got that, we can read that. But it's easy for us, easier for us to forget the works of God. Because they're done and then we move on to the next one. But we're told, as we talked about a few weeks ago, to remember what God has done. This entire passage is calling us to be deliberate, solemn, thoughtful, and contemplative of of the Word and the works of God. Not just for one hour a week, but daily. Set aside some time specifically to, to meditate on the things of God. And I'm talking about separate from your Bible reading and your prayer time. Find a time where you can just sit down or take a walk. 
and think about what is God doing and how is he doing it and how does that apply to my life and, and what other scriptures lead me and teach me in this way. Thomas Watson writes again, meditation has more sweetness in it than, than the bare remembrance. The memory is the chest or cupboard to lock up a truth. Meditation is the palate to feed on it. It's where we get the taste of God at work. Let's look at our final point. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. As I stated earlier, this one doesn't teach us what we're to do, but how we're to be. Delighting in God. To live in the delight of the Lord, his word and his ways, as a result of applying the scripture to our lives through serious meditation. I've quoted a lot from Thomas Watson today. This is my last Watson quote for the day, but this is the bumper sticker one. If ungodly men can meditate with delight on that which will make them cursed, shall we not meditate on that which will make us blessed? Let me read that again. If godly men can meditate with delight on that which will make them cursed with ungodly men, shall we, the godly men and women, not meditate on that which makes us blessed? That's how we're to be. Spend some time today, each day this week, thinking about how God has blessed you. And if you don't know how he has blessed you, come and see me or one of the elders. I'm sure that within a minute or two, we can share three or four different ways that you've been blessed, even in the last week. If you are and you do know how you've been blessed, share it with someone else. Remember, it's the good news that we're sharing So share the good news. This is how God's been at work in my life. That witness goes far more than these are the things you need to do in order to be a Christian. That's important. But most of us are moved and touched far more by seeing how God has been at work, how God is blessed, than we are about hearing what we're supposed to do in order to get that blessing. Spend the rest of today in the presence of the Almighty, delighting in the word and the work of the Lord in your lives. And I want us to do that together now as we gather together and come before the Lord to receive the Lord's Supper. While in this act, we're reminded of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's easy for us to to get again sullen and a little morose here. Oh, we're talking death, so uh, this is... uh, Uh, This is a solemn time. It's solemnly celebrational. I don't know how that works, but God said, Jesus said, whenever you gather together to partake, do this in my name. This is a delight that we've been blessed now to share with each other the celebration of the great gift of life and the shedding of blood that we have through Jesus Christ, that he gave himself for us. Physically went to the cross, physically died for us to give us life. Dwell on that for a minute because that seems so oxymoronic, but it's real, the, when you really realize what that means, it's powerful. He died that we might live. Shed his blood that we might be clean. 
And we know because scripture tells us that if we are his, then that work has been fulfilled in us. And we will see the fullness of that in glory in that final day. That is something we should celebrate. We should take delight in. This is a great celebration, not a funeral ceremony. We now have and get to partake together in a life-giving meal that brings us into communion with the Lord and each other. And so we come to this table, the sacrament given to the church. Not to everybody. We don't put a bulletin board, I mean, a billboard out on the street, out on the parkway here to say, y'all come, we're having communion, because it's not for everybody. This is a delight, a sacrament for God's people given just to us, a gift from the Lord, and that we can celebrate.